Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of The Whole Tooth, a podcast all about sharks, rays and their underwater habitat brought to you by the Save Our Seas Foundation. I'm your host Isla and every episode I sit down with experts in marine science and conservation to ask them your questions about sharks and the oceans. I hope you enjoyed our last episode which was all about the largest species of shark and the world's biggest fish, the whale shark. And if you haven't listened to it, go and check it out because this week's episode kind of follows on from that. It's all about an issue that affects a lot of species. Uh, You might argue it affects all species in the ocean, but in particular, it affects filter feeding species of shark like whale sharks. Today, we are talking all about microplastics. I actually recorded this episode while I was out in the field this summer myself, looking for another filter feeder, the basking shark. Now, regular listeners of this podcast will know that this is a species that I work most closely with up here in Scotland, and microplastics is actually something that we've been worried about for quite a while now. Um, We've been seeing microplastics in our plankton samples and we've always wondered if it's going to cause issues. So like those of you who wrote in wanting to know more about microplastics and who are a little bit concerned about it, it's a topic that worries me but is also very interesting to me and I couldn't wait to learn more about it. And I can't think of a better person to learn from than my fabulous guest today, fisheries and microplastics expert, Dr. Alina Vitarik. Alina has been leading a Save Our Seas Keystone project since 2019, which aims to study microplastic ingestion by whale and baskin sharks, aka filter feeders. She talks about that work in detail in this episode, why microplastics are important to study in relation to them in particular, and tells us some of her interesting yet slightly concerning findings. Aside from her work for Save Our Seas, Alina also has a PhD from the National University of Ireland, where she studied microplastic pathways in marine pelagic systems. So basically how microplastics enter the marine food web and where they go. And she also has some pretty shocking results to share from that as well. However, although microplastics may be a macro disaster, as Alina mentions in the title of her project, She also believes that they should serve as motivation to help protect the marine environment and she talks in this episode about her passion for outreach and bringing her scientific findings closer to key stakeholders and decision makers. And she has some fantastic advice as well for you at home as to how you can help. So without further ado, let's dive into our episode. Hi, Alina, and welcome to the Whole Tooth podcast. Hi, thanks, and thanks for having me. No, thank you so much for coming on. I am incredibly excited to go through this question today because it's something very close to the species that I work with the most, um, and I know a species that you've worked with too, um, and possibly an issue that affects them. And it's a question that we get asked a lot from our audience Um, And that is about microplastics and how they can impact sharks. And I'm so excited to get into your research because it is utterly fascinating. And there is so much that I want to ask you today. Um, But first, we're going to talk a little bit about you 
um, and how you arrived uh, looking at microplastics and also, you know, kind of where you're at now. But first, I'm going to start with a question that we ask every single guest on this podcast, and that is, what is your most memorable experience in the ocean? Um, I think it's tough to pinpoint <laughs> the most memorable <laughs> one. It gets topped every time because every time you're in the ocean, you think you know what you're seeing and then something small surprises you. So, I mean, I had encounters with sharks and I've been in the water with whale sharks and basking sharks and that was absolutely incredible. But sometimes you don't expect to see anything. And now I'm working in fisheries. You see a species come up you've never seen before. So mm-hmm. I think it's just more the surprises of, of the job. Um, but uh, yeah, I think definitely also parts of this project, which uh, I will never forget. Um, um, we've seen a uh, whale shark at night feeding, like uh, filter feeding at night um, at the surface. And that was just so incredible. And he stays around for several hours. So, yeah, mm-hmm. I think that's pretty much in the in the top list thing. <laughs> well, yeah, because I've, I've seen videos of that and it looks incredible because they're kind of like, I mean, during the day, it's also amazing. But at night, you've kind of got the spotlights, don't you? And you can see all the... Plankton, the plankton or the krill being kind of sucked into its mouth like like a huge great big shark vacuum yeah I think nighttime yeah. always it's something something to the whole experience as well. <laughs> yeah something a little bit more mysterious you're obviously clearly you know you work in marine science and you're clearly extremely passionate about what it is that you do but I was interested to know sort of where did that kind of, where did your love and your passion for the marine world, where did that be- begin? I'm actually from a German country, like quite far away from the sea. And I think, uh, well, I was always a keen swimmer and so was my dad. And my dad also was always very, very excited to explore questions. And I had around like nature with me. So I think, yeah, it was always the swimming, which just made me feel so good in the water and so secure was like my happy space always um mm-hmm. but then the sciencey part came in a lot too yeah just I think it's something in young age where you research questions about nature and if that's what you like doing yeah so you kind of got into it through swimming I guess like you must have been sort of looking at things and thinking of questions like along the way yeah cool and so how did you how did you then get into looking at plastic pollution? Like a lot of young people do, I guess. I took a, a year out after school and I was always, I was already keen on um, studying marine biology, but I ended up in Uruguay in a sea turtle mm-hmm. rescue station volunteering. And it was mm-hmm. pretty shocking at the time because we recovered a lot of stranded turtles from the beach. So and a lot of dead ones as well, and a lot of necropsies. And we figured out that a lot of them died most likely because of plastic ingestion. The whole um, stomach was jammed up with plastics, and it was pretty disheartening. And I think, yeah, that was definitely something which drove me in that direction pretty early. Mm-hmm. And so when you went to university, was it something that you kind of researched all the way through, or did you go for your PhD so your PhD was obviously on plastics did you kind of go for that title because of that experience that you had sometimes I think it's a lot of um, the right things falling into place which is what happened for me it was definitely something I was always really passionate about and you wanted to maybe work with turtles as well um, 
So that was something that kept me motivated. I think you always need something big to work towards too. And for me, that was definitely something which just kept me sticking through the less exciting parts in college. Because <laughs> I knew <laughs> I wanted to work and make a difference. And yeah. And then when I was wrapping up my PC studies, there was a lecturer who started in my university who's previously worked on microplastics and him and another guy who's working in um, biogeochemical cycling which is the other kind of spin to my thesis they were just the ideal people to supervise me at the time and so it all fell into place for Mm -hmm. me pretty much. And so was it because I know there's a couple of different ways that you can apply for a PhD so was it a a title that your supervisors had uh, that you kind of applied for or was it something that you guys worked on together to sort of figure out? Well, it was something I wrote <laughs> through a long process and I applied I think, nice. three different fundings and I ended up on the waiting list for all of them and then I didn't get any of them. <laughs> and then, <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't give up those, so I kept, kept trying and eventually... Um, one of my supervisors managed to get some money but the handy thing was then that I already had my whole thesis laid out because I wrote the proposal nice yeah yeah I I completely understand that feeling I was the same I did it the same way it took me a year to find funding I think it's really important as well for listeners who are maybe in the same boat to realize that it can take a little while and it does need a little bit of perseverance sometimes but it does happen in the end. It's always really nice to to hear that, especially when you're struggling. Do you want to tell our listeners a little bit about uh, your research then? So what did you do for your PhD? I know you're doing something a little bit different now, um, which we'll talk about a little bit later on. But do you want to talk about the, the project that you did? Yeah, so most PhDs are comprised of uh, an overall topic and then several chapters within overall topic so my overall topic was pathways of microplastics through pelagic environments so that's in the open ocean rather than close to the shore and I was particularly looking at three organisms so we were looking from basically the smallest to uh, larger ones and the larger ones were deep sea fish so mesopelagic fish in the north Atlantic from an eddy structure an eddy is a current which is going in circles, so potentially accumulating particles within it. And then I was also looking at salts, which many people might not be so familiar with, but um, they're very important in the cycling of carbon in our oceans. So they transport, they feed on phytoplankton, which capture light and CO2. And um, it's obviously quite good for removing carbon from the atmosphere. And salps eat these phytoplankton and they form like these really dense fecal pellets which sink to the seafloor. So then that carbon from the atmosphere is basically being transported to the seafloor. And the last organisms I was working with were these very tiny heterotrophic nanoflagellates. So they're microscopic organisms and looking at how they interact with the smallest pieces of plastics. So basically looking at how all these three organisms interact with plastics. I kind of wanted to start us off kind of like right at the beginning. So for people who maybe don't know what microplastics are when we're talking about it, can you can you explain sort of what microplastics are? So there's a standard definition of 
uh, microplastics, which is everything kind of below five millimeters in size. That's plastics, which either are by nature that size already, so by design, or um, plastic pieces which fragment, so uh, bigger plastic pieces which fragment through the impact of sunlight or uh, physical stressors, like wave action, and then they break up into smaller um, plastics. And my favorite example for, for that, for people to, to understand the fragmentation is like a flower pot. If you leave a flower pot outside for a while, mm-hmm. it gets a lot of sunlight and rain and, you know, and then you pick it up. It often happens that they start to just fall into pieces. But that's exactly what's happening with, with plastics in the ocean, at beaches and all this kind of stuff. So we, we see them break up in nature into these small plastics or what we call microplastics. And now there's a lot more, now we've started to research them a little bit more in the last decade, there's more and more definitions of what's microplastics and then we have now nanoplastics as well, which are just very small ones. You won't even be able to see with a naked eye, whereas sometimes when you walk on the beach, you can see those, those small plastic particles at the tight line especially. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we're finding more out about them, kind of. We were just talking about this before the podcast started and that we're finding out more and more kind of like worrying things as science advances. I mean, even when I started university, like 10, maybe 10, 11 years ago, like microplastics wasn't even sort of really in the mainstream vocabulary. Like people weren't really discussing it that much. And then even in the last decade, you know, it's become... A huge thing and quite rightly so because it is a very big problem i mean the the project that you worked on for the save our seas foundation uh, that had a brilliant name which was microplastics a macro a macro disaster i think it was yeah um so these tiny little things are creating such a huge problem um and you kind of described it a little bit there so you the flower pot analogy was really good in how larger bits of plastic can break down into you know much smaller parts but you also said that microplastics sort of already exist naturally. And I wondered if we could talk a little bit about where they maybe come from and also how they end up in the sea, because we are finding them, you know, everywhere throughout the ocean ecosystem. So, uh, you know, where do they sort of begin and how on earth do they end up in our oceans? Yeah, so this, um, different so, so these larger plastics are... Um, for example, if you think about landfills, it's one, one big source. Landfills located close to the sea, especially. So that's mm-hmm. a source of especially larger plastics, but also the, already the smaller ones, which have fragmented. Uh, and then we know that rivers can transfer, like they're one of the main sources transporting plastics into the ocean. And then, uh, so that's specifically talking about the larger ones. But when you think about smaller sizes, um, we have these nurdles and this bean spills of nurdles, for example. So nurdles are these, um, let's say, these raw material plastics, which are then shaped into whatever plastic item of desire. Um, so it's the raw material, but they look like little pearls. And yeah, they've been transported in containers. And if you if you Google this as well, you will see there's in several events where those spilled into the environment. So that's the raw plastic materials being spilled. But then one of the big sources which we haven't thought about years back, like especially when this research started out, is um, actually fibres. So that's mm. what I've been finding a lot in in the sharks, in the deep sea fish, and people are describing more and more is that we find these plastic fibres. And 
these are shedding from our clothes. We know these are shedding from our clothes. So there's been also studies looking at how much of these fibers are shedding out in one wash. And in many places, like when the water isn't treated to remove those plastics, which is the case in a lot of places in the world, are these fibers, uh, then, yeah, they, they freely can enter the ocean. And, mm. uh, and that's what we're seeing now. These are the plastics we're seeing now being ingested by many organisms. All right. Mm, I mean... I like even I know um, a little bit about microplastics and obviously, you know, I work in the marine science area. So but even that's a surprise to me that that's the most prevalent type kind of showing up in our species. And I think that'll be a surprise for a lot of people at home as well, because when we think about plastics, we think about, you know, the cotton buds and plastic bottles and plastic bags that you see in the water and. but you don't typically think of the fibers coming off your clothes because a lot of people think uh, that our clothes come from kind of natural sources like, you know, the wool from sheep, for example, or from cotton, whereas a lot of it is, you know, the kind of like the, the I think the polymers, they're called, uh, that come off the fibers that come off of your clothes um, when we wash them. And obviously when we're washing them in the washing machine, where does that water end up, you know, at the end of the day, ends up in the sea. Um it's just, yeah, com- completely shocking, um, sort of the extent uh, that plastics have kind of reached into our ocean ecosystem. And as you said, you know, particles that even we can't see with our with the naked eye. Um, but for your research, um, so now kind of sort of wanted to talk about the link between microplastics and sharks. Um, and a lot of your research has focused on filter feeders. So whale sharks, which we would have discussed on the podcast two weeks ago, um, and also Baskin sharks, which we've talked about a lot on this podcast, because obviously they're a species very close to my heart, um, and I love them very much. And this is why I was so excited to talk to you, because microplastics is something that we are worried about. Um, and I wondered if we could maybe kind of talk a little bit about why filter feeding sharks may be affected by microplastics or how their two are are linked there it's not just filter feeding sharks it's uh, all filter feeders really in the ocean so that could be from the smallest organisms or filter feeding to the large ones mm-hmm. uh, such as baleen whales or yeah filter feeding sharks and the way they feed is really by sucking in a lot of water and then taking their food out of that water and um, mm-hmm. so they're taking in all that water and for whales and sharks it's huge amounts of water because they feed on the planktonic prey and that's their food source but obviously everything else what's in the water gets retained uh, as well and then ingested eventually and then another um worry out there is that for those organisms who feed on huge amount of uh, zooplankton uh, and phytoplankton um, whatever is attached to or ingested by uh, the plankton also gets internalized by the whales and sharks. And in that way, it just kind of accumulates. It's a really huge amount if you think about one zooplankton and you know, one in every hundred has a piece of plastic in it. That's a, a bit of bad luck to ingest one, but because they're ingesting so many of them. Um, yeah, it's, mm-hmm. it's important to maybe look at the impact of that. Because it's almost like, I guess, yeah, I guess in a way it's almost like 
say if we're drinking contaminated water it's the same thing for our sharks right so they're kind of essentially when you've got predatory sharks they're eating fish that have kind of come up the food chain a little bit and that's a that's a whole different issue you've got the kind of accumulation up the food chain but our baskin sharks and our whale sharks they're feeding sort of right you know on the, the low trophic level kind of where those microplastics sort of really are and that's something that you've you were looking at is the different pathways and how that can possibly you know get into the body of these animals and um, but something I was quite interested in and I don't know whether I'm phrasing this right but correct me correct me if I'm wrong but how can you how can you even begin to test for that so is there a way that you can test for microplastic ingestion in these kind of filter feeding sharks the approach we took and is looking at where do the sharks feed and then taking mm -hmm. samples from there so we sampled from hotspots feeding hotspots of sharks and we're going to look at basically what's available for them in those environments so that's the the way we're going to look at it but also we had some very empirical evidence thanks to the guys in the Maldives from the whale sharks who have been collecting food samples from the whale sharks and we've seen mm. microplastics in there so that tells us also that whatever they're ingesting somehow it does get ingested as well which uh, mm -hmm. is in a way mm -hmm. good news but could also potentially be bad news because it could still mean that those plastic leaves some chemicals while they're inside the sharks and that can have a bad impact on the sharks, but also it gets ingested again to the environment in a different, more bioavailable form again, because it's surrounded by, by a lot of organic material. And then if you see any of these sharks ever pooing out, <laughs> and you will notice that, that a lot of fish come in and they immediately eat up everything what's in the water. So... Of course, you're making it way more available again to all the fish in the environment. So it's important to understand and it's one of the first things people said. It's like everything that goes into the marine environment is going to stay there and it's just going to change in whatever way it's in the environment. So it's going to be attached to different things. It's going to be ingested by different things and then ingested again by different things. So it's just cycling through the ocean. Yeah, I feel like I feel like it's in the circle of life, but I won't. Uh, subject you to that <laughs> um but yeah the the underwater ecosystem guys it's not pretty um so I've never seen a Baskin shark poop unfortunately myself but there are videos of them defecating from animal toad cameras the the, the research came out last year um and they are uh, pooping kind of like down in deep water and it is it's so bizarre like the the animal poops and then all these fish come around them and they're like ooh tasty little uh, tasty little meal for me there and then start kind of nibbling on it so yeah I guess, I guess it's kind of it's a good thing that it some of it is coming out the other end but it's also you know not the best thing in the world because then other animals will eat that and as you say it just keeps cycling through the the ecosystem um but we you know you kind of talked a little bit about so you know you led a project um, for the Save Our Seas Foundation on microplastics, the the title that we said earlier, a, ma a macro disaster. Um, and you discussed it a little bit there. So you worked with the, the guys in the Maldives um, and looked at fecal samples. Um, but were there other ways that you also looked at the microplastic pathway? So what, what kind of other methods were you using in that project? 
Yeah, so we, we were investigating these hotspot feeding sites and then we collected samples from there. So we collected mainly plankton samples from discrete depths. So we know that they dive to feed. There's this hypothesis that they do these feeding dives and then come up and rest at the surface, more in the shallows where people might spot them. And uh, yeah, we were just keen to see what's down there and what do they eat and is whatever they eat eating plastics so that was one question but we also collected some water samples um so we have these bottles which you can lower down in the water and they just snap close and um you can collect discrete depth samples from that from there we were we were filtering the water over these filters and we can look at the amount of organic material and so that's basically anything organic floating in the ocean and Mm -hmm. this material might also have plastics attached to it basically so that's Mm. similar to what I was saying with you know the sharks defecate and it's in a different form it's the same with these particles which you know they have biological material maybe some plastics worked inside them and that makes mm. them more bioavailable to the sharks and to to other organisms in general. But one thing that is also interesting is that the sharks don't necessarily retain the smallest plastics, but some of the plastics we've been finding are quite small. So it would be quite interesting to see how how does that happen because it's it's really not possible for them to retain that. Yeah, so I guess in a way you're kind of looking at what's going in. Um, so like the surrounding water but also the plankton too but then also what's coming out the other end so that whole kind of process um so can you tell us a little bit about um I mean I know you're still analyzing some of the data but what it is that you found yeah I mean we're still um waiting to (laughs) we have the the plankton now analyzed as in like you know which species are there um, so now we're going to look at um, the main species and see, do they actually have plastic? So plankton is a bit of a challenge because you can dissect one single plankton. <laughs> yeah, really small. <laughs> <laughs> so we just sort a lot of, we count them out and sort a lot of one species into a sample and then um, we can basically dissolve the organic to around it and then look at um, what what's left, which will be the plastics. So that's okay. what we're going to do. Um, and that's still a work in progress. But we know from the FICA samples that, yes, they do ingest plastics uh, because they had some plastics in the FICA samples. So whatever came out had plastics in it. And what was really interesting was that that was mainly fibres as well. We had some mm-hmm. some other types of particles, but yeah, it was, it was a lot of fibres. And yeah, that could be from clothing, but also... A lot of um, ropes and fishing gear. Um, unfortunately, sometimes they just have to be abandoned because they get stuck somewhere. But then degrade in the environment. And yeah, um, those types of plastics was mainly what we found so far. So we kind of we kind of do know, I mean, it makes sense that they would be ingesting them. I mean, I know from our own plankton samples that the microplastics sometimes can be exactly the same size as the copepods that our Baskin sharks are eating. Um, you know, and the question is whether it kind of just goes right through the shark without causing any impact or, you know, whether it actually, you know, gets taken into their bodies like it does. We know it does with kind of whales and dolphins It like accumulates in their tissues. Um, but 
you know, plankton are such a key part of, you know, most marine food webs, almost every single one, actually. Uh, you know, they're kind of a really, really integral part. Um, and as you said, it's not just filter feeding sharks that are being affected by this. Um, you know, what what could this mean for for other marine species? So, you know, not just not just sharks, but what could this mean for the sort of marine food web as a whole? Yeah, it's exactly like you said. So yeah, I'm always trying to draw analogies <laughs> to, to something that's closer to people. So it's yeah, it's not like taking out plants, but yeah, taking out all the food sources for the carnivores out there because the zooplankton is everything. It's quite at the basis of the food chain. So you have phytoplankton and then after that, you have zooplankton eating on the phytoplankton and then everything else feeding on, on zooplankton. So a lot of fish eat on zooplankton, some on specific species of zooplankton. So that's mm. exactly what would be interesting to see now, like which species are most at risk. Like, are there any zooplankton in particular are more prone to plastic ingestion? And what does that mean within the whole food web? What's mm. the cascading effect of that? So, mm. yeah, that's one of the things you hope we can answer with, with this work as well. Mm. Yeah, that's a really good point, actually, because there's, you know, zooplankton literally just means animal plankton, right? So there's so many different so many different kinds, so many different species with different feeding strategies and different feeding mechanisms. That's a that's a really, really interesting question. Um yeah, I guess I think about how like how copepods feed. I used to have a lecturer that used to demonstrate it. He jumped up on a desk and used to do this with his hands because they kind of generate their own little water currents because the copepods kind of suck the or channel that water into their mouth. So you do wonder whether they're ingesting microplastics that way. And I guess that's kind of, as you said, that's sort of where your research is, is kind of what are those pathways? So how are the microplastics sort of getting into the, the food web? Um, and like we said, we can, we're still kind of, you're still working on it and still getting the data, but it's kind of a bit, it's probably safe to say that sharks, like whale sharks and basking sharks are, ingesting microplastics um but kind of do do we know anything about sort of what the potential effects of that could be sort of like on the sharks it's pretty tough to make any assumptions really on that and of course that's the main question I think I always get by everyone and I can never answer satisfactorily in the stakeholder workshops we do I give the example of sea bass and there's actually a paper which is really interesting and it shows like cross-sections through the intestine so the sea bass have been exposed to plastics and polluted plastics so plastic pollutants on on the plastosphere basically you can see visually see that the intestine is reacting and becoming um inflamed so that that's the example which i think is always good to show people to make them understand that that's what might happen Mm -hmm. obviously if it's a different species and everything you never really know what's going to happen and you cannot study these species because yeah, it's not like a sea bass you can keep in a tank, and it's also morally a bit of a different story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. Um, so yeah, it's it's pretty tough to say. But there's also been a study which looked at um, phthalates uh, leaching to the tissue of um, filter feeding sharks, 
Mm-hmm. So we know that some of these chemicals, which are basically associated to plastics, are being taken off into the tissue of sharks, so of filter feeding sharks. So that's a pretty big indicator that it does something to them. And it obviously there is this reaction somewhere mm-hmm. happening. And um, yeah, I mean, then the next step to making some assumptions or conclusions <laughs> about mm-hmm. what it does to the sharks is to look at what do we put into plastics. And that's down to the industry, really, what, you know, some some put flame retardants into their plastics. Some plastics are way more toxic than other plastics. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that's really what we need to think about, like, do these plasticizers or colors or whatever we put in there, what does it do to animals, humans? So that's mm-hmm. a really important question, uh, which is now starting to be addressed. But yeah, it's yeah pretty, pretty much in hindsight, <laughs> if you think about it. Something else that you do is you don't just look at microplastic pollution, you know, in sharks, as you said at the beginning, you look, you know, from the right smallest organisms right to the largest. And you've looked, you know, all over the world, you know, from, you know, even to the deep sea and places like the Arctic. Um, And I know a lot of people kind of think of these environments as pretty pristine and untouched, uh, you know, by humans. You're talking about deep ocean or some of the coldest parts of the planet. Um, But something that you've looked at is whether microplastics have made their way to those environments. Um, And I was interested to know, sort of like, did you find microplastics kind of in fish, you know, even there as well? Yeah, so I think that was something which shocked me the most. And probably one of the studies which got picked up the most I worked on was a study on um, mesopelagic fish. So it's fish living in the zone of our oceans, which is just about where there's a little bit of light left um, Mm -hmm. before there's Mm -hmm. no light at all. So um, very deep down, like from, you say, certainly two to 800 meters. Obviously, that varies a little bit. But yeah, in, in, in those areas, we see these fish, we call them mesopelagic fish. And obviously, just given the depth and also the remoteness of where we were sampling them, uh, I didn't necessarily expect any plastics in there, but that we, we actually found um, plastics in 73% of all these fish. So that was pretty, pretty shocking um, for me at the time. And it's also like <laughs> one of the first studies I did as a PhD student. So oh. that was, <laughs> Quite intense right. for your first. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Well, because earlier it's something which, which really drives you to work sometimes nights or whatever, which I mean, yeah, it's it's a tough field anyways, but you need to be always on the ball. But, it, you know, when you're really passionate about it and you feel like, OK, this is important work, it's important to make people aware of it. Gosh, then Seven, 73%. That's crazy. <laughs> That's a lot. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it was, and it was because it's like you said, it was so far away. Um, I mean, we've now seen um, study come out on new fossils, so they're very important, especially for mesopelagic fish. But it, actually, they're all over the ocean, and they've been sampled from uh, the Mariana Trench, like the, the deepest point, <laughs> and mm-hmm. and they were found to have plastics inside. Them. So it's. If the plastics have reached that part of our oceans, it's it's a pretty alarming uh, message, I think. But it also, again, just shows that 
we have to understand that whatever goes in there is gone forever. It's not like a lake where you can, you know, you drop your shoe in the lake and you fish it out the next day. <laughs> if you drop your shoe in the ocean, if that ever happens to you, you know, it's gone. Yeah. Like the waves take it out and, <laughs> you know, there it goes on its journey. And it's just. Mm, okay. Yeah. And I mean, something that you talked about at the beginning, which I sort of wanted to cycle back to as well, which is, you know, we've we've talked about the scale of microplastic pollution and we've also talked about how it can impact sharks the different you know pathways but also you know they might there might be an indirect impact on sharks because of the effect on the whole you know the the processes in the ocean and one of the most important things I mean your work is so important all of it um but one thing that you've also looked at is their effect on the biological pump and kind of how that's slowing things down and you kind of you touched on it at the beginning um in that you know if microplastics continue to increase that will slow the pump down so it's kind of not doing it at the moment but if they continue on the trajectory that they are um and i wondered if you could explain for our listeners kind of how that's happening but also potentially what that could mean for the the ecosystem as a whole yeah of course um so maybe to start off with the easiest way is to just explain what the biological pump is so it's Mm -hmm. basically yeah the transport of organic matter or it's mainly carbon (laughs) so that's where the biopark comes in um through our oceans so that means what you can see with plants we have plants in the oceans which are phytoplankton and they're responsible for a lot of we also have seaweed but the phytoplankton are responsible for a lot of of um, the photosynthesis in the ocean. So photosynthesis takes up carbon from from the atmosphere and life, and it produces this organic carbon, which then is way more available to organisms in the ocean. So, and that way um, it can get eaten up by the the animals, so they can use it in storage, but it can also be transported. So other animals eating it, and like I said, pooping it out or defecating it. And yeah, making it available in a different form. And a lot of it is this downward flux to the ocean floor. And once it reaches the ocean floor, at some stage, it doesn't really get recycled anymore. So we have these bacteria and fish eating at the surface. And a lot of the carbon, which is there, just gets recycled and then put back into the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. But some of the carbon gets transported down to the seafloor. And we need some organisms who do that job for us. So some feed at the surface, then swim down and defecate there, or they die there, and that's the way carbon gets to to the seafloor. But there's some organisms like salps who eat at the surface, and then they make these dense fecal pellets, and they just sink straight from the surface in a superhighway, basically, down to the seafloor. Mm-hmm. And that's because whatever pellets they make, they're very dense. Um, copy pots do the same thing. But theirs mm-hmm. are actually not so dense as the ones that from salt. So oh, a lot more of these fecal pellets get recycled at the surface. Whereas for salts, yeah, it's just dense and fast thinking. So it's it's very important. And they're actually, it's interesting that not many people know about these organisms. And, and when they eat plastics, because plastics are not dense, like when you put a lot of plastics, like styrofoam is the best example. If you put it, 
entity's surface, it just swims right. Or if you put styrofoam in a glass of water, you can see it just swims right at the surface. So let's mm-hmm. say it's not just a piece of styrofoam and it gets incorporated into that pellet, the property of that pellet changes and it doesn't sink so fast anymore. And then it stays in that surface area a lot longer where it's then available to bacteria and other organisms. That, that means that carbon gets eaten up and eventually respire back to the atmosphere. And our oceans are so important in this uh, carbon uptake and that shifts like this could potentially offset, um, yeah, our carbon budgeting, which has already been offset through through human activities. And uh, yeah, so um, what's important to say is though that it was an experimental study we did, so we didn't study this in the wild. We looked at different concentrations Mm -hmm. of plastics and looked at what would happen. And like, we really need a lot of plastics for this to happen. Um, or a lot of plastics for itself to ingest it. And it needs to mm-hmm. basically encounter, have the chance to encounter these plastics <laughs> so that it can do something. But mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, you never know, maybe those plastics salts don't actively swim so much. So often they're around where ocean currents are around and then plastics are around these ocean currents as well because they get transported together. Mm-hmm. So they might be particularly prone to ingesting plastics and these are all things which are important to consider so how many Mm -hmm. plastics are actually there is this actually having an effect or maybe it is especially having an effect because they Mm -hmm. get transported together it's important to consider these things oftentimes we hear shocking results but you need to put them in context as well and exactly Mm -hmm. that's yeah also something people often the fear that you know what happens if I ingest a piece of plastic if I eat a fish and um, but you don't eat the stomach of a fish when you eat a fish for yeah, <laughs> yeah these, these things yeah. like you need to always question the news when you hear them because what I realized over time as well is a lot of these stories get blown up to scare people so mm-hmm. yeah I mean plastics are not a good thing I'm not trying to say that but don't don't get scared by every news you see and question it and put it into context I think is really important yeah that's a really really good point um because it's quite easy to just kind of get sucked into that sort of real kind of very doom and kind of apocalyptic view especially when it comes to plastics um but I mean we've talked in this episode about the fact that you know sharks can ingest could ingest microplastics or are ingested microplastics but we don't know yet what the impact of that is for sharks even we don't know whether that's going to affect their health or you know whether they're just passing it through their body or you know we there's still a lot of unanswered questions um you know but there there is hope and you know there are things that we can potentially do to help reduce the problem um and something that you do a lot of is doing a lot of outreach with stakeholders to kind of communicate your research and also you know, try and figure out ways that we can manage the problem and actions that we can put in place. Um, And I just thought it would be really nice to sort of, I know this episode has been very sort of talking about microplastics as a problem or even a disaster, but, you know, how, what kind of actions or changes can be taken to help prevent kind of more microplastic pollution from entering the environment or try and manage the problem as it is already? Yeah, I think 
I see microplastics is maybe like a, a motivating example of environmental crisis um, mm. because every problem is also an opportunity to do the right thing. So, mm-hmm. and with microplastics, it's been kind of beautiful to see how people have engaged with it. So, and I think it's to do a lot because it's quite visual. Um, mm. You know, you can see plastics, you walk on the beach, you see it. And I've been amazed with from children to like <laughs> anyone, even, yeah, policymakers, they're very ready to engage with the topic. It's, it's maybe less complex than climate change. I sometimes wonder whether that's one of the things. Um, but yeah. Um, yeah, so I think it, it's it's been amazing how people have changed some of their behavior. And I think there was definitely kind of like the initial period where people were becoming more aware and everybody tried to do their, their little thing. And I could see that as soon as you start doing something and you keep it for a while, it becomes a good habit. So I think it's just important to stick to it to make it a good habit. So yeah, that's that's mainly the work I've been doing, like especially with you know public outreach or schools and stuff like that. So just looking for these small habits you can mm-hmm. change. And then yeah, it's also it's it's always tough to <laughs> to do this kind of work when you're not particularly trained in it, but with some support and training we've uh, We've started to to work with stakeholders and so that was politicians, but also people from university and other research organizations in the Maldives. And we've we've basically just shared our findings at the very early stage with them and just asked them for their opinion, for their opinion on solutions. Mm-hmm. And and also what they already do. So you're not taking that role of just going in there and telling them how to do things, you know, which is not really the right way of doing this kind of work. If you, because everybody's already trying their best usually. Oh, <laughs> yes, yes. Not many people are inherently bad, but you just come in there and say, okay, this is what you're doing right now, but what is preventing you from going to where you want to be? So that's mm-hmm. more kind of the way and what needs to happen and you know maybe just bringing people together some people we just brought together in a room and already things started happening mm-hmm. and it's also really hard to capture I think at some stage when I started out this project I had hoped that you know we're going to revolutionize how waste is managed and everything like that so I think you need to be a bit realistic that sometimes it's enough to just bring the right people in a room together and start off a good conversation for them mm-hmm. To work together and that's going to do something good down the line which is maybe not even visible to you but yeah this kind of work is really really important um we can get way better with by working with people outside of our field so social scientists mm. people who know how to do proper science communication you know this kind of way how to work how to engage with politicians i mean that's who knows that when they come out from doing a PhD, you sit four years in a lab by yourself <laughs> most of the time. So it's not so easy to then walk into a room full of decision makers or policy makers and yeah, yeah, facilitate the conversation. So yeah, you need you need some some good people to do that with. Um, and I was really lucky to have that. Yeah, definitely. And I think as well, because working together is is incredibly important. Um, but I imagine there's a lot of listeners kind of sitting at home at the moment, sort of wondering, 
you know, what can what can I do on an individual level, you know, in my everyday life? So you talked about some of those kind of like subtle changes that people can make. Um, and I mean, of course, a lot of us have stopped using single use plastics. That's kind of one of the big things. But is there anything that they can do to kind of try and avoid microplastics kind of in particular? Yeah, I think the most basic decision, like there's many different things. If do you really need to buy something in the first place? <laughs> it's always my, <laughs> that's always my favorite thing because everybody says buy something which is made out of a natural project. But if you already own a plastic cup, if you throw it out now to exchange it with, you know, I don't know, a different type of cup, like a wooden one or whatever you prefer, you know, that plastic cup is going to end up in, in the bin and mm-hmm. in a landfill or something, you know, it's not, it's not like recycling doesn't mean putting it in the right bin. Recycling means using something for a really long time until it's mm-hmm. served its time. So I think that's 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 an easiest step. <laughs> but then if you do go to you know a shop and you think, okay, what what decisions are making? Like definitely everything which is made from natural materials. You know, like you said earlier, wool is definitely better than polyethylene. Like you buy your clothes, and it's also going to do you to do. Yeah, buy one piece of clothes, which is really good for you and spend more money on it than like five different jumpers, which are made out of plastic. Yeah. That's, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, yeah. I think that's a very simple step. But then also some people want to go beyond that, you know, and I think it's very empowering. Like I do, I do something which I think has very little impact, <laughs> but it helps me just to remind myself. Like every time I go to the beach, I walk along that tight line and I pick up those microplastics. I see, and, mm-hmm. you know, it's just a meditative thing for me. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I collect yeah. them in a glass jar. So then this jar is filling up. And I, I really love the name as well. It's like the Nerdle Hunt, I think, is <laughs> or Nerdle Hunting is what it's called. Yeah. So, and I find it very therapeutic too. Um, yes, yeah, exactly. Quite meditative. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. I love doing it. And also, you know, you have to jar it home and you look at it and then, yeah. You, yeah. You know, it makes me remind myself of, you know, what, what I want in life. And, but also engage with, you know, if, if, engage with other like a lot of places around your community will have beach cleans and stuff like this teach the younger generations about this you know bring them along to those things organize something if there's nothing Mm -hmm. there organize something try to bring people together if you have the time Mm -hmm. to to commit or even you know the older generation as well because quite often the younger the younger generation of schools are so clued in now on these issues and sometimes like speaking to your parents or you know even your grandparents also has an impact too um and you know i just as many people as you can get the word out like science communication is so important um and you know especially people like yourself who are doing the science and you communicate it so well like you know it's just really important to share that sort of communication and, and share the work that the scientists are doing and and yeah and also you know feel free to write letters to your politicians as well and ask them to do more like I know it's I know it feels really scary to do that but um like you said it's 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 super empowering yeah well that was one thing I was just thinking about whether I should mention it but yeah there was the one school class who felt like they really wanted to do more so they ended mm-hmm. up writing a letter to their local um politicians mm-hmm. uh which is just so nice but also yeah I mean it's not only politicians you know the big companies they start acting now as well so 
Yeah. The people who produce and manage the plastics hold them accountable for, for what they're doing. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you have power as a voter and a, as a consumer. I mean, these people kind of exist to serve you. They can only really sell the things that you buy. Um, and politicians can only really do things with your vote and they want to keep your vote. So you have more power than you think as an individual. But in terms of I'm looking at time and I've got to, unfortunately, I could honestly talk to you all day, but I've got to be out on a boat very soon looking for the very Baskin sharks that we were talking about. So, but I... I'm interested to know if there is if there is one thing that you could that you'd like people to know about microplastics, what would it be? So the one message I give about microplastics is yeah, I actually I through Safe Our Seas I recently was invited to this um beautiful exhibition. Yeah, it was an exhibition about plastics, but it view plastics in a completely different way it's something beautiful and in mm. the first instance you're like okay well, how how do you see that beautiful but the artist was explaining a little bit more later on that if we start to see plastics as something like valuable and beautiful you cherish it more and you basically oh, yeah. take more responsibility mm-hmm. for it so maybe yeah don't don't always think of it as something negative and that's also, what I was trying to say was like, if you own a piece of plastic, it doesn't need to go to the trash straight away. Mm-hmm. It is, is something you use when you need to use it. <laughs> and only is that, and then value it, you know? And, mm-hmm. and, and that also, if you, it makes you more conscious about it. So, you know, even if you discard of it, you discard of it way more consciously than, mm-hmm. and in the right place, hopefully. <laughs> and, yeah. <laughs> I like that. I really do like that. Um, and that's that's something I've been trying to do personally as well as if I, you know, what where can this peanut butter pot, where can that be used? So you can use them as plant pots next or, you know, something useful, like everything it has a life kind of like after after you've kind of used it initially, like it's got longevity. And that's what plastic, and that's the problem with plastic is that it lasts for a really long time and it's durable and it ends up in the environment for a long time. But it's also the good thing about it. That's why we invented it in the first place was to be able to, you know, have it multi-purpose and have it durable. And so, yeah, that's a really good way of looking at things. Like we need to treat it as such. Um, And I know that you're... Yeah, I mean, you've done a big move to New Zealand now and you're working on slightly different things. Um, so I just wondered if you could tell us a little bit about kind of what you're going to be, what you're kind of researching at the moment. So what what's the next plan for you? Um, I've always uh, worked alongside my PhD in fisheries service and acoustics. So I'm, I'm currently uh, working as a fisheries scientist in, in Newa in Wellington. But uh, yeah, I mean, this is, uh, again, a, a place where, for example, communication is really important and loads mm-hmm. of different skills. And I think that's what it makes it about research um, is that, yeah, you learn skills. You know, it's all about skills to learn. And then you can use those skills to address whatever problem you're interested in, which is yeah, exactly what I'm doing now. Now it's for me, fisheries, deep sea fisheries, um, researching those questions more. Um, and it also, I mean, that's the that's the beauty of doing research. Doors never close, which is which is good. So yeah, I'm, I've already made some connections here, and 
hopefully keep some of this work going. Yeah, for certain. I mean, it's definitely, it's going to be really exciting to see kind of where you go next. And I know some of the papers that you were working on for the previous projects as well, like you're still analysing the data and that's still due to come out. So yeah, listeners, keep your eyes peeled for that. We will share it when that happens. But um, I do have one final question. Um, it's a question that we ask every single guest um, and... I've also learned this is also potentially quite a hard question, like it is with the most memorable experience one. But it's what if you could be any species of shark, ray or skate in the world, what would you be and why? I think it would be a basking shark. Yes. <laughs> Just because they're the most <laughs> mysterious. Of all, they disappear. They just dive into the deep and no one knows where they're gone and they're doing their own thing. And yeah sunbathing yeah, in the summer <laughs> taking yeah. it yeah and yeah just the way they look like I mean they look like dinosaurs underwater <laughs> they do they do they look really prehistoric I am thank you so much for saying Baskin Shark I have been waiting <laughs> this will be our 22nd episode I have been waiting for 22 episodes for someone to say Baskin Shark as their oh, really? yeah so maybe it's like I, I didn't want to say it first because it was the most obvious <laughs> choice. But the more I thought of it, I was like, no, it definitely represents my character the best. <laughs> <laughs> like go away and disappear in the winter and no one knows where you've gone yes. and then just reappear in the summer, like, hey. But yeah, it has been so fantastic to talk to you and so lovely to learn more about your research and this has been a really fascinating episode. So, Alina, thank you so, so much for your time. Oh, thanks. Yeah, thank you. This was actually great fun. This podcast was brought to you by the Save Our Seas Foundation. It was hosted and edited by me, Isla Hodgson. Our beautiful artwork is by Nicola Poulos. And the wonderful jingle you can hear right now is by David Knight. A huge thank you to Alina for taking the time to come onto our podcast and talk so openly and in depth and positively about microplastics. We really appreciate it. If you want to find out more about Alina and her work, you can do so by heading to the World of Sharks website where you can find the show notes of this episode. And a massive thank you to you at home for listening. As always, if you have any questions that you want answered on the podcast, any topics you want covered, or you just want to say hi, please feel free to get in touch by emailing Isla at SaveRCs.com or you can do or you can find us on social media. Alrighty, have a jawsome week and we'll see you next time.